Welcome to this week's episode of EcoScoop. I'm Emer, I'm your host for today. So this week's a bit different. Um, I'm kind of giving a rundown of kind of the protests at COP26. So I was over for um, kind of the last week of protests. So from about the Tuesday or the Wednesday to the Friday. Um, and so it was a brilliant experience and I got a lot out of it. Um, but so this episode kind of mainly will focus on kind of interviews that I recorded while I was over there um, and I'll just talk about them a bit and the different things, um, different reasons why people were there. So just a general rundown before we start. Um, so there was a lot of um, a lot of the focus of this COP and a lot of what was coming out of it was kind of voices that were not being heard as much and I think those voices were heard a lot more on the street. So there was um, the likes of MAPA which is um, most affected people and areas voices um, while they were listened to inside, they weren't maybe necessarily kind of followed up on um, in kind of the agreements that came out of the end of COP26. I think there's a lot of disappointment around kind of what was coming out, but also a lot of kind of hope as well and that it would kind of continue the momentum of what had been happening while um, or kind of what the kind of the incentive behind reducing carbon emissions. So I think it kind of built momentum, um, even if the binding results that came out weren't as much as people had hoped. So kind of, I find that it was, there was a lot of kind of a community atmosphere, definitely amongst the protesters. Um, a lot of just people were helping each other. I know at one stage I was um, in the crowd and a woman came around and poured tea and she was giving cups of tea to people and hand warmers that kind of practically saved me <laughs> on the day. Um, so kind of the first protests, as you will have heard last week, were ones outside JP Morgan Chase. Um, so that was on the Wednesday and there was a vigil held there outside JP Morgan Chase, which is the biggest investor or one of the biggest investors in fossil fuels and fossil fuel um, industry. So there was a vigil held there by a couple of um, activists. Um, a couple of them were from XOR um, Scotland and a couple of different kind of XOR locations around kind of the UK. Um, so that was, if you want to check out that from last week's episode. Um, also what happened there as well was there was then a group called Six Groups who then had a Rima speakers from, they were from Indigenous kind of communities who felt that they weren't being heard inside um, the conference centre itself. So that was a very moving moving kind of protest action outside JP Morgan Chase. Um, so again, um, there's still brilliant community atmosphere there. Uh, there's XRNI once, so Northern Ireland XR, who went over as well. And they were um, lovely and friendly. And so this kind of, I guess, is an insight into why people would protest and why people attended the protests while they were over there. Um, so there were various different reasons for people kind of attending. Um, so one of our first, um, one of my first interviews that I'm going to talk about today is one with Kay Laverty, who we have had on the show before. So she is a youth activist, um, heavily involved in the likes of Fridays for Future in Northern Ireland. And Kay was in the Blue Zone um, as a youth delegate to um, COP26. 
So I'm just going to play the quick interview I had with her on the Friday of COP26, so the last Friday, and um, we'll get kind of an overview as to why she was there. So we are here now with Kay Laverty from Hi. our very own Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've been here, Kay, for the past two weeks, isn't it? Yes, yes. yeah, I have, yeah. And so what is your experience so far been like? Um, I mean, I've been mainly involved with the actions outside of COP, and what I've seen is... Like the first week or so, the police were quite heavy-handed. They've calmed down a little bit now as they've got used to the amount of protesters. But I think, like the amount of activists here, it's really, really good to see, and it is making an impact. Brilliant. And from a youth perspective, what's it been like for the youth? I heard um, that there was police were getting quite heavy-handed, or journalists were getting quite heavy-handed with young oh, people in yeah. the zones. Yeah, that is completely true. I mean, not only like outside of COP where you have actions, the press are generally very disrespectful towards especially youth activists because they think they can walk over us and that happened quite a few times on the marches on Friday and Saturday when myself and Anna were stewarding the MAPA activists and Greta and yeah no, they were just really rude really disrespectful and all around a bit of a pain in the ass um, but yeah and then I guess inside COP you see a lot of restriction being put on MAPA activists in terms of like the amount of time they're allowed to like do actions within COP and that has really restricted people's voices people not getting chances to do their speech but then of course there's the threat if they don't get permission by their actions and that's verified by the UN um, they lose their badge and that just makes them lose all of their platforms so there is a lot of bottlenecks and things like that difficulties that uh, we've had to get through but yeah yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. For those who don't know, um, for listeners who don't know, uh, could you explain the term MAPA? Oh yeah, it's uh, most affected people in areas like the activists who come from places like the Philippines or like Colombia, Brazil, all over the world, and they are here for COP. Yeah. No, I was listening last night to Eric, I think, from Kenya, and he was speaking about um, people the MAPA voice has been severely like kind of taken down and tokenistic, almost that people are speaking to oh, yeah. youths and people. Um, just on the basis that they're saying, oh, they're with us, they're with us, but they're not. Um, how Do you think there's a lot of youth washing or um, kind of washing of MAPA voices going on? Yes, I think what needs to change in the environmental movement, and especially as somebody who's part of FFF in Friday for Futures, is giving those MAPA activists not just representation and a platform, but actual control and involvement within the youth movement, which we haven't seen, which I think has been really disappointing. And it's something we are going to work on and we're going to fix because we can't have a internationally representative panel of activists if we don't have people who are from those countries uh, in control in some way or have like say in like what FFF does. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, yeah, no, I 100% agree. We're just here, we're coming, so this is kind of the last day of the protests. Um, any thoughts on um, any main highlights or kind of advice for going forward, I guess, from this? Uh, we'll to... probably talk to you more after this anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Weeks, but um, the sun's coming out now, which is nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, still absolutely pissing it down. But yeah. Um, yeah. I think just um, overall the youth presence here has been, like we're all a bit existentially depressed, uh, to be honest, seeing like the amount of just like big flashy advertisements of really fossil fuel using companies, uh, trying to greenwash their companies. It's, It's very disheartening. But because we all have each other, I think that does make it better. And the fact that we do have those social media platforms and like being able to join together in protest, that's such an important part of it. And that keeps us going. So I think, yeah, we just got to keep going to protest. Yes, 100%. Um, yeah, no, we'll get back now to the rest of the protest. But thank you very much. No today. problem. Um, good luck for the rest thank of you. your weekend. You too. Thank you.
day of the climate protests in or last day of COP26. Um, and so how far have you come today to be here? Yes, we have come from Brazil. From Brazil, yeah, brilliant. Brazil. And why have you come here? Eu acho que cada um aqui tem um motivo diferente assim para estar aqui hoje, sabe? Acho que no sentido de que a gente veio por organizações diferentes essas coisas. Mas a gente tem alguma coisa em comum aqui. Eu vou falar para a traduz. Mas faz essa parte que a gente tem alguma coisa em comum aqui. Eu e elas. Okay. We came for different reasons. We belong to different organizations, but we all have something in common. A gente vem do Nordeste, nós três, True People, que é uma das regiões mais afetadas pela crise climática no Brasil. We all came from the northeast of Brazil, and it's one of the places most affected by the climate crisis. And in what way is it being affected currently by the climate crisis? Por que está sendo afetado? O Nordeste é uma das regiões mais vulneráveis do Brasil, porque a gente passa por vários problemas socioeconômicos e isso acarreta várias coisas, como a fome. A gente tem um clima muito diversificado, que é o semiárido, que isso acarreta muita seca. Ah, segundo cientistas, em 2050, a minha região, a nossa região, pode se tornar um deserto do tamanho da Inglaterra. Então, the Northeast is a really vulnerable region in Brazil, and we have different climates inside it, but we are uh, going through a process of desertification. So by 2050, there are some scientists expecting it to be a desert, and that would affect uh, a lot our power to feed our our populations, our communities. Definitely, desertification, I think, will become a big problem. And I didn't realize it would happen in Brazil, so I'm learning today as well. Eu sempre costumo dizer que no Brasil tem vários Brasis dentro do Brasil, sabe? São várias culturas, vários povos, várias coisas diferentes. Então, o que as pessoas conhecem muito do Brasil é só sobre povos indígenas e sobre a Amazônia. Mas eles esquecem que no Brasil é, é um país totalmente diverso, sabe? Tem culturas diferentes. There are many, many Brazils within Brazil. So, usually people know about the Amazon and the indigenous territories, but there are other challenges that we are facing there. Other cultures, other, uh, other ways of life, other challenges, other climates and regions. And it's important to highlight that. Definitely. As, what are your feelings on how the COP process has been, or have you? Um, do you feel like things are getting sorted, or are you optimistic, or are you a bit especificamente do Brasil, a gente está com um novo ministro do meio ambiente e ele tem uma postura assim mais técnica do que o nosso último ministro, o Ricardo Salles, que era bem polêmico, mas ainda assim ele traz um, um, um discurso com pegadas negacionistas, entende? Então está muito longe do que a gente precisa ainda enquanto Brasil e a gente tem muito potencial para para contribuir com o combate à, à crise climática, mas a gente literalmente não está fazendo nada. Então, so we have a, regarding Brazil specifically, we have a new minister of the environment. He's uh, better than the previous one, which was really com combative, mm -hmm. but uh, but he's also a denier, and we could be leading this, we could be bringing forward the solutions, we could be much more ambitious. And we are not, and that's why we are lacking leadership. And so we need uh, Brazil to step up to this challenge, and we are here to pressure them. Mm -hmm. To pressure them. So to pressure people from your own country as well, then, yeah. Yeah. 
And what organized? Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Não, é só ia dizer que eu acho que é, é muito importante a nossa presença aqui para mostrar para o resto do mundo que a gente não está satisfeita com o que os governantes estão fazendo com o nosso país. Tanto que na COP passada a gente não teve o um espaço oficial do Brasil, porque o, o ministro do meio ambiente, nem enfim, o governo, construiu um. um um espaço, um pavilhão no Brasil e aí a sociedade civil é, criou um espaço é, que se hoje se tornou o Climate Action Hub do Brasil e hoje nessa COP a gente está com dois espaços o um espaço oficial do governo brasileiro e o um espaço da sociedade civil eu acho que a nossa presença aqui também é, é muito importante para dizer que, que, é, que é, o que é realmente a gente está passando para denunciar o que a gente realmente está passando e dizer que a gente não está conivente com o que está acontecendo lá It's really important for us to be here to show that we disagree with, with what the Brazilian government is doing. We strongly disagree and since last COP, we have had to have uh, two pavilions for Brazil. One is the official one and it doesn't include civil society and organizations. And the other one is uh, the one that is uh, open to all the movements and the civil society. And that's ridiculous, but that's what is happening and it's important that we are here to show that. Definitely. And what organizations are you from? Engaja Mundo and uh, Fridays of Future Brazil. Brilliant. And are you from Engaja Mundo? Engaja Mundo. Lovely. <laughs> well, thank you very much thank for you. speaking. Thank you. <laughs> so we're here um, at Tora, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, perfect. So how far have you come today to be here and why are you here today? I've come from Germany, Berlin, um, and I've been here the last uh, two weeks because I realized even before COP that probably they will not reach any satisfactory agreement and I knew that it's going to be very important to protest here and show that people are not satisfied and that we need to do more. And that's why I came here and it's been great to connect with international activists, even though, of course, the results of the COP have been very disappointing. Mm -hmm. And have you any takeaways from the COP26? Yes, absolutely. I think I, I really have no words for what's been going on. Like people from the global south have been systematically excluded from the COP. There's talk about false solutions. And now, even though we know like how dangerous the climate emergency is, they're not even necessarily reaching an agreement. There has been talk about they, uh, that they can't even decide on doing anything. And so, I mean, there have been people protesting here, but obviously it hasn't had the effect that it... Um, should have or it needs to have if we want to not go extinct so I think what we can all learn from this is that the climate movement needs to build up real momentum and needs to be really like threatening to the current system because otherwise we're not going to win and we need to win this uh, fight so I think um, we should um, as a movement um, go more into like more diverse tactics and using things like peaceful sabotage to destroy the infrastructure that is actually destroying ourselves Yeah. And have you got any advice for anyone who wants to kind of get involved with, um, especially youth movements? Um, just like uh, I know you said you're not affiliated with any particular group, but any particular advice or anything that would be handy to read or anything like that? I think um, one thing that I can um, recommend to read is the book How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. And just a general piece of advice: it's so important for all of us to let go of our fears. Like for example, I was super nervous and afraid before giving the speech, and I just keep reminding myself. 
that the thing that's more dangerous is like the climate emergency and I feel like a lot of people are scared of getting into activism for various reasons and it's totally fine but we all need to step out of our comfort zones and then mo more often than not we realize that it's not that scary after all. Brilliant, thank you very much for that and good luck with the next um, couple of days and your, have a safe journey home. Thank you, same to you, thanks for being here. <laughs> thank you. on the last day of the COP26 protest, the Friday, and we're here with two students from France. Um, so you have travelled obviously from France to be here, and why is it that you came here today? Here in the protest. Here in the protest. Uh, I think because we saw a lot of stuff in this area, but not a lot of uh, people reinventing their opinion, and I think we we should share them and like take the streets to yeah. to express them clearly and publicly to the rest of the city. Yeah, uh, we were in the blue zone, and it was important for us to also be uh, in the streets to show that we are also against the the political uh, things. <laughs> And how has your experience been so far? How are you, have it been nice? Has it been a bit disappointing? Or are you hopeful after it? For the negotiations. Uh, for the negotiations, yes. Um, yeah, it's been a bit disappointing because we're supposed to be observers, but even as observers, we couldn't reach all the negotiations. And we felt like the one we could attend were not like the most uh, important ones. So we felt a bit like uh, retired from all of it. And was that because there wasn't enough space in the conferences or you weren't allowed in or...? I think both. both. Uh, it could be, I think, the COVID reason. Yes. Uh, also, I think, like, uh, there is a true limit between, like, the yeah. leaders and the society, the citizens. Yes. Yep. I agree. And how long have you been here? Have you been here for two weeks or just a few days? Uh, for one week. One week. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Same as. And what's your name? Sorry again. Just Numa. Numa. Charlene. Perfect. Thank you very much for speaking to me. Good luck. The final day of COP26 protest just outside the COP centre, and I've just met some people from the Extinction Rebellion Earth Vigil, and I'm here with Isabella. Um, so, Isabella, would you be able to tell me about just what's kind of why you're here today? We're praying that the delegates will move on the crucial aspects of 1.5 fossil fuels and loss and reparation for the, the global south. And that's what we're really praying for, substantial and substantive uh, commitments that start to work now. And that's why we're praying for them now, to, to hold an intentional presence that they can feel supported and hopefully guided by the Holy Spirit. And when did you first get involved with um, with this particular um, kind of part of the movement? A couple of years ago, maybe, and I just was determined to come up to COP to the the, the COP26 because it just seems so historic and such an important uh, watershed moment in the history of humanity, and it's just got to they've got to take this seriously. Definitely. And there's quite a big crowd here today and this is very effective. As you can see it, it looks brilliant, the little vigil that's going should I say big vigil that's going on. Um, have you got any particular hopes or anything you're kind of taking away from this experience? Um, or any just message you'd like to share? The power of solidarity and the power of working together and, and uh, the way that we can break down um, barriers between peoples in terms of all sorts of things because we can reunite in communally 
working on this really important thing. It's a real power of community. I'd agree. There's quite a sense of community about the place um, over the past few days. Um, but thank you very much for talking to me and good luck with um, the rest of your vigil. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Today, um, it's the last day of the COP26 protest. Um, this is one of the Chilean delegates. Um, if you want to just introduce yourself. Yeah, of course. Um, this is Freddy Sebastian Medina from the village of Putre, Chile, from the people, indigenous peoples called Aymara. I come along um, in a long way and happy to be here, even if we don't have a, a very serious deal yet. Mm-hmm. And do you feel happy with how things have gone or are you... Well, how do you feel about it, I guess? <laughs> well, um, it's happy to be with more people who are uh, who have the conscience to reivindicate the climate crisis as um, a human uh, right to be to live uh, in peace and uh, with a good livelihood. Um, but not happy with the results uh, until now. Until now, and what made you happy with it now? Really, if you ask me that today, well, two things. First, um, to have um, uh, clearly uh, indigenous people's rights and human rights references in Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And second, well, um, to be here more time with these wonderful people from Scotland. Oh, brilliant. I know Glasgow's quite nice. It's been very welcoming, I think, and there's a big crowd growing here now as well. Um, anything else or any last things you'd like to say, advice perhaps, or kind of feelings you're taking away from it? I just want to say one thing. Um, independent Scotland. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Thank you very Hi-ya-ya. much. <laughs> well, good luck with it and thank you for talking to me today. Thank you. So we're here at COP26, the last day of the protests, and I'm here with Lou. Um, so Lou, why are you here today? Um, I've come here to see uh, what's actually happening with the, where the COP26 summit is being held. Uh, quite shocked at the fence and their level of policing here. Uh, the reason I've actually come is because I've got serious concerns about the way our government and the world government are um, are exploiting the planet and um, bringing us to a point where every part of our ecosystem is so polluted and toxic that it will no longer be able to support life. You know, we're wiping out species, we're cutting down trees. Um, the deforestation of trees is just horrendous all over the over the planet. But I mean, we only have to look at HS2 to know that this is happening in England. Uh, the HS2 line, uh, the uh, company um, supported by Thames Valley Police and other police forces, the British Transport Police, are cutting down swaths of woodland that are five miles wide. And it's more of a, the same: the government and the council selling off uh, people's. Um, resources uh, when they should be managing them. So it's time that, that the people's resources were given to the people. The common land was returned to the people. We really need we need our land back. We, we you know we need our land to, to you know anyway. <laughs> Thank you very much. Can I get you to introduce yourself? I believe you're with um, Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, my name's Angie. I am a doctor, well, an ex-doctor, because I've, uh, you know, uh, I've had enough. And um, But I'm, yeah, basically an advocate for um, people and nature that don't have the same power and privilege as I do. And that's what I'm going to do now with the rest of my life. And um, my particular mission 
now having I've, I've been with Extinction Rebellion and I've been with Doctors for Extinction Rebellion and so on for a couple of years but I think now my focus is going to be on um, uh, promoting the Stop Ecoside campaign I'm not I'm not affiliated with them or paid by them or, or anything like that apart from the fact I've met a couple of people and spoken to them over the years over a couple of years that's it but um, that's what I feel is my heart is calling me to do and I think I think that would be such a great solution I've always been someone that, that is like about bringing people together and bringing and creating the solution between us or together within us and, and looking for collective power um, to take power over people that are more interested in individualism and for me the, 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 at the moment there's no way to control those companies and those people that want to um, you know uh, put their own individual power and wealth above others and there's, there's no law against that at the moment like apart from you know genocide and crimes against humanity which isn't being used as a law against those people but it certainly should be but also ecocide you know we, we all know that classic story of the, po the poison well you know if, if you go and poison a village's well then you're you know you're going to basically kill or displace that village whereas no different here if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your forests are getting burnt down or your livelihoods or your fishing stock are depleted because of pollution or your air's you know polluted and all that you're basically, it's basically poisoning the well it's no different and therefore but that, that, that's it, there has to be you know uh, an international criminal law against egocide and until that, I think it's going to be difficult to enforce stuff until that's there so that's my my, my crusade if you like now I don't like that word no cut that uh, that's my uh, my passion and something that I can get behind and try and bring people with me and and also I think the what I find is like I don't know I was just thinking about it this week being up in Glasgow and thinking so much so much energy goes into different uh, different things and that, and that is right and uh, people will go should go for what where their hearts at but I just wondered if like for maybe a year or something if everyone in the world just like really focused on or at least put some energy into supporting Stop Ecocide campaign even if it was just to sign up as an earth protector or set they've got a, a web a page there which is about like signing up for a manifesto for their company or organisation or council or whatever, a business or whatever it is, or country even. And, you know, just, just honestly, like, a couple of hours' work could make could make such a difference. And if everyone did that that's into anything related to social justice and climate justice, you know, because they're, they're intertwined, they're, they're, you know, you cannot, you know, sever them apart. And so, you know, if everyone just did a couple of hours on it, you know, and then went back to, you know, whatever it is, veganism or, or you know, their, their own village situation, or their people situation then I think collectively we you know that would be a lot of power and also if um, individual leaders were able to you know really pull on their principles and values in terms of you know um, collect collectivism and collective um, you know basically thinking about the greater good rather than um, allowing individuals to uh, gain and get powerful and wealthy at the, at, the, at, the, at the expense of everyone else so I think this is for me is the solution or a, or a massive part of the solution definitely I think everyone has to follow their own kind of path in it but no um, definitely I quite like that idea of a year any just final hopeful takeaways or any takeaways from COP26 or thoughts going forward for you, the listeners even yeah um, I mean yeah I'm 
mean, uh, COP26, I mean, I think from what I've been hearing, it's hard to keep track of uh, everything that's happening, but from what I've been hearing, there are some hopeful things and there are some good things that have been happening. There's like the idea of loss and damage has sort of been accepted and, and, and you know, I mean, we're not even talking a lot of money. You know, I heard like something like 200 billion, which is nothing. I mean, it's like, I heard, I mean, I'm not great with facts and figures and I'm not, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm not educated in like economy and all this stuff. So I'm just a beginner. But, but what I do know is that like what I heard was it's only like 200 billion, which is like when you consider it, JP Morgan invested 317 billion in fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement when they supposedly agreed that they weren't going to do that. Um, you know, then, then that puts it into perspective. So it's nothing really. Um, so, I mean, it's great and I'm really pleased. And uh, I met a guy on the train the other day that was saying that he's part of, you know, an anti-corruption thing to try and get that, you know, make sure any money that comes out of this goes to the right people and doesn't get siphoned on by corrupt individuals in those countries, which is awesome. Um, you know, and obviously that's a bit of work. But, um, yeah, so uh, as I was saying, um, just if, if, if everyone that's involved with all social justice, climate justice movements can, can pull together around Stop Ecocide, you know, like I say, even if it's like one hour to sign up, well, not even that, five minutes to sign up as an earth protector, maybe 10 minutes to sign up at their, at their company as a manifesto, and then, and then also pressuring, you know, or, or, or sort of guiding and supporting the government, uh, you know, and leaders to make this... Uh, national law, national criminal law against ecocide, as many, you know, more and more countries are starting to do that, and even like President Macron started talking about that in France, and um, so, you know, it's it's all, it is really, really, really possible, and actually, why on earth have we not got a law? It seems incredible to me that we don't have a law that stops you basically killing, it's like the Romans used to put salt on the fields, so that the, so that, the, that, that, that village, to, as a punishment so that village would die. It's just the same. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's basically killing people via killing their livelihoods, so, you know, their food and their water sources and that. So it's just, to me, it's the same, uh, you know, as genocide or crimes against humanity, but it's sort of like, you know, you know, technically can't use that. And that's why you need ecocide to be uh, an international, um, you know, in the, in the international criminal court to be illegal, like a criminal. So I'm here with AJ Camacho and we are both attended COP26, but on different sides of the, I guess, on different sides of the fence. So AJ attended um, the conference, kind of the Blue Zone conference area as press, and I attended outside as a kind of protests. Um, so AJ, I guess we had kind of similarities in our experiences, but also some differences. Um, I know mine was a lot of the voices I spoke to and people I spoke to were a lot of people who were kind of disappointed at what was going on inside. Or was that kind of the same experience you had or was it kind of a different experience? There really was a mix, if that makes sense. Um, it, it really did feel like most people I was talking to shared that general sentiment of disappointment, of, in a sense, realizing that uh, what was happening in COP wasn't doing enough to secure a 1.5 goal. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's not realistic, obviously, but not securing that. Um, but at the same time, there was also a lot of a lot of joy at what was being done in that, it, it, if this could make sense, it was disappointing people's hopes, but it was exceeding their expectations. So in general, it felt, especially in those last couple of days that I was there, they seemed to think that they were getting more than what they frankly expected, but they were still getting a lot less than what they felt was necessary. Yeah, I guess that was kind of similar on the outside as well. People were kind of, I guess, disappointed on what the outcome was, especially as the 
reports of 2.4 came out rather than the 1.5 everyone hoped for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in terms of um kind of what had happened, I guess, as well. Um, I know a lot of the voices, there's a lot of dissent outside on like the kind of the leaders that were kind of discussing negotiations and stuff um, on kind of whether like Global South voices and minority voices, MAPA voices, youth voices were kind of being listened to um, or kind of taken on board enough. Um, Was that kind of similar inside? Yeah, no, it it was similar inside in many ways. Um, I mean, to just give you an example, there, there were protests, there were civil societies allowed to, to demonstrate, but to be allowed to demonstrate, you have to get approved by the UN. And so the amount of people that stopped and looked at those, those events, those protests, those demonstrations, relative to the amount of people who went inside and listened to world leaders speak, listened to press conferences, was very minimal. And I think of all the people I saw looking at these protests, very rarely you'd get a member of the press, Sometimes, most often, you'd get a member of a of an NGO or something like that, an observer. But almost never would you get someone with one of the actual parties themselves. And as far as uh, a lot of those concerns are being ignored, there's one aspect: the civil society getting ignored. But it, it should also be noted that a lot of the youth, even inside the conference, felt that they were getting ignored. Um, at a, I was at a conference with uh, Yungo, which is the official youth uh, climate movement constituency to the UN. So they're kind of the uh, envoys, if you will, that the UN recognizes as the legitimate representatives of the youth climate movement, if such a thing is the case. Um, But even they expressed that they felt that Yungo has been a little sidelined this time, is what one of their official representatives told me. Um, They argued that a lot of the people that were being seen in COP26, that they were cherry-picked activists, to use their terms again, and that they just weren't engaged with as much as they were expected. So even though they felt that their organization, their recognition advanced in Glasgow relative to the way before, they agreed with the general sentiment of youth washing, that uh, people were very tokenistically listening and taking pictures of, you know, hanging out with young people, but not actually paying attention and not actually considering what they were saying. Yeah, no, I think that was kind of a general kind of feeling I got outside, especially speaking to a couple of um, the kind of youth activists who were inside the kind of the blue zone and the green zone over the two week period. Um, so, yeah, it, is, it was disappointing to hear that from people because you kind of go over expecting, kind of also not really knowing what to expect because it was my first cop anyways. And I believe it was your first cop maybe as well. Do I think you've been to kind of. Oh, yeah. No, it was absolutely <laughs> my first cop. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I will say actually as well, um, it for all that it was my first cop, it was still quite uh, disorganized. I know this is a a little bit of a tangent, but a lot of people I talked to who had been to previous cops before, they expressed a lot of disappointment, um, particularly as it came to the civil society and protests, as I was just saying. Um, a lot of them had said, you know, particularly in Paris, but even even just in 2019 in Madrid, protesters were allowed in a lot more frequently. The vetting process that the UN took them through was a lot less stringent. And so you you felt as you were walking through that diplomats and parties could not ignore this, this presence of the public. But in Glasgow, there was a fair amount of protection from a lot of that. I mean, I, I know you and I were by the fence at the main entrance. So we saw that there were still protesters there. We saw that they did still hold up signs, try to remind people going in in the morning what it was about. But 
a lot of the most important diplomats stood, they spent the night at like the Hilton Garden Inn, which is within that main fence. So a lot of them never saw any protesters that the UN hadn't vetted before. Yeah, that's quite interesting that um, people are staying inside and that is kind of a true point. They wouldn't see what's happening outside. I know I was speaking to a couple of people um, and there was one or two Extinction Rebellion ones who had tried to get in as kind of delegates for certain groups, but um, they must have been vetting pretty heavily, like, because <laughs> um, XRNI isn't known for its like particularly drastic actions, I guess. Um, not particularly disruptive in kind of comparison to what happens in London and other places in the south of England um, and around the world as well. But no, it did seem it's quite stringent, so that's quite interesting to hear. Um, overall, I guess actually another point as well is the negotiations did run over a bit, um, kind of what they're meant to. Um, were you happy with kind of what was happening or kind of what was the reason that kind of the reason for that that you got in there? Um, as far as the uh, conference running over time, mm -hmm. um, it was it was a very interesting process. I think pretty early in the day, Friday, early afternoon at the latest, it became very evident to me and to pretty much the whole conference that it wasn't going to end by 6 p.m. Friday. And I think by the middle of the afternoon, around 4 o'clock, it was clear that it wasn't even going to end that day, that it was going to go into Saturday at least. And this was something that had been suspected for a while. First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, had told some reporters that she would not be surprised if it went one or two days over. Um, and at the time, it, it was a mixed feeling um, because uh, on, on the one hand, and this was the case talking to a lot of members of uh, NGOs and observers there, there was on the one hand a sense that this agreement already doesn't secure our future. So in theory, what is this going to be? Maybe it's going to be countries that take the issue a bit more seriously, fighting to get a stronger deal. But then there's also this dose of realism that is that what's happening? Well, diplomats who are actually familiar with things were telling us not. Um, I had one person familiar with negotiations telling me it was really more like nations such as Brazil, um, or as you found out, especially at the end, India and China, that were really buckling down on language that really changed the sentiments of some of the most important things there. So it was, um, it was a very anxious time. But at the same time, the pressure could have been a lot greater because, to be frank, the deal that we got in the end, and really everyone inside of the Blue Zone really felt this way, it is a lot of rhetoric, but doesn't demand a lot of specifics from countries. The, pretty much the only specific thing it does demand that countries are going to have to follow through on is to revisit their, their uh, pledges of carbon reduction every year. And to ask them to recommit that pledge isn't a whole lot. There's nothing there saying 10% reductions by 2025, you know, 100% by 2050 or anything like that. So an anxious time in the sense of when is this going to end? What are we going to get? But also a bit laid back in the sense that we kind of know we're not going to get anything that great. Yeah. I almost wonder, is there a sense of kind of apathy, kind of just acceptance of what's kind of happening, which would be very disappointing, but perhaps there is. Um, <laughs> I, which is quite I, I feel, <laughs> No, but I... I do feel it, especially among the press, because um, to be to be blunt, pretty much all of the press people I, I, I spoke with there, I mean, I should say, I'm going on the assumption here that anyone listening to the EcoScoop already believes in climate change and that it is man-made and that it, it, it's going to cause problems. Um, if you want, if you, you know, send me an email or something, if you're a listener who wants me to present you the evidence for that, but I'm going to assume that. Um, that's, those are the same assumptions that most of the people in there in the press make. Um, 
and so yeah they they always sort of felt you heard it after every single pr- press conference with Alex Sharma or heck even after China and the United States announced this joint statement there's no substance there's no substance or this is the only substance in this whole thing so there is that sense that mm, is this really going to make the difference and the short answer i think really from the sense of again every member of the press there is that this conference itself by the time that that first cover draft was released released it was evident this wouldn't make a direct solution to things there are ways it might help having that rhetoric out there reminding the public about it putting some amount of pressure on private enterprises uh, on national and local governments that can make a difference but will it make a direct difference i don't think at least since i was there on on the second tuesday of the conference no one seemed to really expect this conference to make a direct impact and really it, in many ways it didn't uh, save a few agreements that were hashed out towards the beginning yeah, no, that's quite interesting. I guess is there anything you've learned from it, or anything you're kind of kind of main kind of thing that you enjoyed or kind of hope from it? Because I get, I feel like a lot of this episode perhaps is going to be quite <laughs> people discussing the problems of COP or kind of discussing problems as well. So is there any kind of hopeful things that which might be kind of hard to find? But like I feel like there's kind of little gems like sprinkled throughout the COP experience as to what were good, even if the majority of it wasn't quite what was kind of hoped for. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, for me, there is a lot of reason to be hopeful. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think what this COP brought to reality is something that most people, somewhere between suspected and knew, um, since even before Paris, I would argue, arguably some scholars, maybe as far back as the 90s, is that the international community, the international system is not going to solve climate change. Um, what's going to, to solve it is making, what's going to solve it is different actors. To some extent, that might be local governments. Um, there is a group called the C40 that consists of about 100 major cities worldwide. Um, and two-thirds of their members are on track to meet the Paris Agreement's goals, for example. So local governments are making progress. But even in the biggest achievement of the international system, the Montreal Protocol, the phase out of chlorofluorocarbons, and the closing of the hole in the ozone layer, people often attribute that to the international system, that agreement, but that agreement wasn't signed until there were cheaper alternatives to CFCs than CFCs themselves. So what made the difference was people demanding on a personal level action, not, not wanting to buy products that would have damaged the environment, and companies and researchers adapting and finding those alternatives and really the system sorting itself out. Um, and what we saw in terms of pledges, even from COP26, if they were to be lived up to, we would limit global warming to below two degrees Celsius. That may not happen. But the increasing of this ambition, I think there is very good reason to be hopeful that we can limit global warming to two degrees and possibly even 1.5 degrees Celsius. I don't want to put odds on that, but I think that there's there's good reason to be hopeful because a lot of that investment is going up. Solar energy and wind are already the cheapest forms of electricity worldwide. And as far as other lessons, I, I will say... Um, to add it on a completely separate side of things. For me personally, it was an absolutely brilliant experience. It was a little bit being thrown in the deep end because my journalistic experience is very novice, um, as, as you probably know. Um, and so just to be thrown in with a bunch of world leaders and major members of the press, it was 
uh, challenging at first, but it was really helpful because a lot of people, a lot of, um, you know, people from the Associated Press or from Sky News were encouraging and they offered a lot of tips. And uh, it was helpful in understanding how these sorts of things work and also the roles that everyone plays in these major conferences, whether that is the press, whether that is observers or whether that is the parties themselves. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I get your point on being thrown into the deep end with it all. <laughs> I'm the same, like the journalism hasn't been going long. Um, but no, it's brilliant. Like kind of the being surrounded must have been quite an experience. I know whenever I was on the outside, I call it the outside, but I was kind of in the middle of the protest, I guess. <laughs> but on the other side of the fence, there was a certain amount of journalists as well, kind of um, who are doing similar things to me, or there's mm -hmm. like a couple of photographers that you could you would recognize their faces kind of thing um, from kind of other media organizations. So no, it was really interesting to see. Um, yeah, and it was a brilliant experience um, despite kind of what's come out of it. But no, I kind of like that idea of as well, um, you mentioned um, individual kind of demand because I guess that's kind of a lot where a lot of it comes from. So um, kind of mm -hmm. keeping the momentum going after COP26, I think is a kind of a big thing that people are hoping for and that I'd be hoping for myself. So kind of, yeah. Um, kind of just a nice kind of momentum kind of keeping going and hopefully building as well because I feel like a lot of a lot of the time unless it, until it gets to you personally it's kind of less it, le it, yeah. it impacts you less and you'll have less care for it so I think on kind of bringing it personally to people I think is very important so yeah and, and that's been such a huge change we've seen even in the past three years I would argue even back in Paris this wasn't obvious but nowadays the majority of the public understands that climate change isn't a distant thing, that it is actually happening right now. That wildfires and floods, the floods that we saw in, in Belgium and Germany, for example, just earlier this year, most of these things would either not have happened at all or have been a lot less severe if, if it weren't for climate change. And people are beginning to understand that, like you said, it's becoming more and more perceptible. Um, and I, I think you know, kind of like you're saying, a lot of this falls on the responsibility of the media and press. Uh, we student journalists, we will do our, our part as best we can, but especially bigger news outlets. Um, I think her name is Caroline Lucas. She is a Green Party MP in the UK. Uh, she she really uh, burst out, I, I overheard, at um, COP26, actually, after interview with a reporter. And she argued that she's most upset with the media about this whole problem because the media is going to change stories in a couple of weeks. Climate change will be on the back burner. So people will pay attention to it less. And so politicians will therefore care about it less. And certain companies will care about it less. So you're right. We The role of the press is going to be quite big in this. But it, it does help as well. It's sad, but it, it helps for the long-term prospects that climate change is becoming more perceptible and people are beginning to better understand that it is a real threat. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Um, the media definitely have such a big part to play and as it does become more and more kind of prevalent, people will care more. So it is it's kind of a bittersweet in that sort of way. <laughs> but no, thank you very much, AJ, for coming on. Um, and it's been brilliant speaking to you. And it was a brilliant experience. We met up a couple of times over there too. So um, had a brilliant cop experience. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, Emer, thank you. And it, it, it was brilliant. It added to the cop experience, knowing what was happening on the inside and out. Yeah, no, 100% degree. It's nice to have that little balance. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
So that's all we have time for for this week's show. So I hope you enjoyed it slightly different. Um, so thank you to all our guests and to Flavia for letting me host today's show and for all her help with it and to Robin as well, our editor, and to all our producers and have a brilliant week.